Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up, and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Right, so we have time to do culture. Now, I don't know if you want a one-man band business because you want a sort of outsourced, leveraged lifestyle business, or if you want to build an empire and you want to be an empire builder, as we discussed in the first session. I'd say people is more appropriate to you if you want to build a team and an organization and less appropriate to you if you just want a couple of VAs. But even with a couple of VAs, the culture, how you manage and deal with them is still important. So as discussed, the culture of your organization is the feel and the environment in which the people work. It's your, it's your energy. It's your uniqueness. It's your values transmuted into a working environment. Now, when Mark and I started, we set up an office in the dining room of my two-bed house that wasn't big enough to fit a proper dining room in. So I had to get a table which folds out like that and make it up if I was ever dining. I think I used it like for two dates. I don't think it went any further than that. And I don't think it was the table's fault. (laughs) Um, And we went down to Ikea and bought all the furniture and got a couple of cheap 300 quid computers. And because it was so small and it was like a box, I had to sit here like this table against, desk against the wall with a little window and Mark was pretty much like not all, like if you pushed my chair back and his chair back would almost crash. And then he was facing the other way out of a smaller window. And whilst that got us started and it would cost us virtually nothing because it was in my bedroom, it wasn't the right environment for us to create a culture. So when you start, you want a little room and you want to make it how you want it. So even in my house, because I don't work from the office anymore and we've got 80 staff, I work from my house or... I've actually got different rooms in my house I work from, or the phone or the laptop. But I have a front room. One, it's got a very expensive record player. It's got some nice speakers. It's got a nice big TV. It's clean, it's open, and it's light. And I could sit there and work all day if I felt like I wanted to. I've written four books from that room in the last three years, probably. So the environment in which you work is important. Now, you're either driving it and creating it, which I'll get to, Or, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're working yourself, even going to a nice coffee shop or sitting somewhere in the gym where it's nice. Some people like quiet. Some people like background noise. I like background noise. I like to feel this stuff going on. I like a lot of light, the temperature, all of this stuff, just for you to be productive. That's sort of important if you're a lifestyle entrepreneur. Now let's move on to creating a team, an office and environment. So the first thing is the values of your organisation. Everything drives from values, as you're probably noticing. If you've read Life Leverage or, I mean... The, the middle part of the circle of this business model, um, the business cash flow blueprint, is vision. It's you. It's your values. 
So the culture values for us expanded on our individual values uh, and they became progressive, innovative and personal for the company. Uh, and then we added ambitious, resourcefulness, loyal team. There's eight internal culture values. And I always say to my team, if you have a decision to make and you have to make it, look at those values. And if the decision that you make aligns with those values and you make a mistake, it's okay. So if one of our values is ambitious and someone in our team does something very ambitious and it goes a bit wrong, at least they were living according to our values. So I'm good with that. Now, like I said, we crowdsourced our values from the team we had at the time. Um, it was actually our, our meeting room used to be in that office there. So you know where you get your drinks and snacks from. You come in the little lobby area. That used to be our meeting room. And one half of this building um, is probably this half. I think like this is a, a fake wall and there's a storeroom in there. And then there's another training suite the other side. And we owned half of that. And this other half was owned by another company. So that was our meeting room. And we, we'd create our culture values in there. And we had the bottom floor as our office. We might have had 15 of us working here, maybe 20. Top floor as our training suite. But even things like putting the houses on the wall and painting it orange. Okay, the carpet's a bit shit, but that's only because Mark's too tight to change it. Um, but it's still blue. Well, actually, it's sort of blue and black and brown. But it's meant to be blue. Um, blue wall. Um, try and create this environment both in the stuff you put in and the way that you are that re represents your culture. Okay, great. Next then is, so your culture is your identity expressed through your organisation. Now, if you are organised, efficient and productive as a person and they're important to you, then that's how you create your organisation. It's always tidy. Everything's compartmentalised. Because that's you. And if you're in like the health or medical profession, that would be a better value than being disruptive and innovative like us. It's not about trying to be someone else. It's about expressing who you are commercially. This is important as well to think about. What makes you unique? This is important in your marketing. This is important in your values. And this is important in everything Okay, sometimes you can try too hard, so I'll, I'll track back and I won't say everything. But that, you know, if you think about a lasagna. Yes, I am somewhat random. <laughs> my mum's lasagna, oh my goodness me. If you think about a lasagna, it's a basic set of ingredients that are exactly the same. But what makes someone's lasagna better than someone else's is the... Um, the herbs, the spices, the way it's cooked, their own unique take and flavour on it. And that's how I think you bring your skills to business. What's your unique take, flavour? What do you do better, different than other people? So we're going to do an exercise now before we carry on, which is you're going to spend five minutes writing down and thinking about what's unique about you. Now, some of you may find this easy. Some of you may find this hard. So let me give you some context. You could think about, you might want to write this down, actually. You could think about, what am I good at? Because actually, what you're good at, a lot of people might not be good at. So that might be your uniqueness. What do people say about you consistently? How do you like to do things differently? 
What do you know, maybe about your niche or your industry, that others don't? What do you know that others don't? Because obviously that's going to be, um, it's going to be unique if others don't know it. What feedback do you get consistently? Now, this can be anything, by the way. This can be your logo, your name, the way you dress, the way you speak, the way you behave, the way you think about things, the way you come up with ideas, the products you create. So use it as a brainstorming exercise for now. And don't limit it to anything. Just start writing stuff because it'll get you, um, get, it'll get more ideas flowing. Um, so yeah, fire away, five minute exercise. Go, what's unique about you? I'll try and give specific examples each time I move through this section because I've thought for a long time about doing a podcast episode, you know, a proper deep dive one on culture. What's held me back from doing it is the somewhat ethereal, intangible nature of it. We're going to do a little quiz later like we did in the first session and show you some office images and you try and guess which the company is. Sometimes hard to put into words. I'm trying my best. I'll give you some examples along the way which hopefully put it into words, this je ne sais quoi, intangible, ethereal thing that is culture. Okay, so what you stand for and what you stand against and who you are and who you are not also creates your culture. So when Mark and I started in property, this was 2006, we would wear um, suits, probably, you know, Ted Baker kind of suits, probably navy, probably white shirts. Um, we worked for someone and he, he didn't really, he wasn't too strict in how he dressed. I don't think we really wore ties. So we were sort of semi-corporate. And after a few months of wearing, for me, what was very restrictive, I wanted to like rebel against blue and white shirts and Ted Baker suits and stuff like that. Because I just felt like this is what everybody wears other than sticking a tie on it or not. It's not expressing who I am. And it's funny because at the same time, I felt the same about the organisation. So I also notice in the, in the office, because my staff can wear what they want. You can always pretty much tell when someone's really happy because of the way they dress or unhappy because of the way they dress. They come in, they're bright, they're vibrant, they've made an effort, they're usually happy. They come in in a bin bag, they're usually pretty unhappy. Um, you can just tell because, you know, just, just how you dress. So um, we ended up leaving that company. Well, actually, that's not technically true. I got Mark and I fired from that company. Some of you may know that story. That's definitely for another course and another day. And as soon as we did that, Mark and I pretty much knew who the competitors were, who the big players were. Um, we started to get to know more about them because we were obsessed about learning from the competition. And immediately I said to Mark, we need to wear really bright stripy shirts um, because it was, I kind of liked wearing bright stripy shirts. I was into a couple of brands which had really bright stripy shirts like Duchamp and Etro. I was like, Mark, we've got to wear this. We've got to be different. We've got to like jump into this industry and make some noise. Um, and we did. And we got a lot of mind space and we became very well known in a short period of time because everybody was wearing greyish suits, trousers a bit too short, the same pair of shoes. Mark and I would wear these sort of brown Jeffrey West brogue shoes rather than, you know, the black ones that you wore at school when you were 12 and you were boarding. Um, you know, and it just like we just went at it really differently that they wore baggy suits. Mark and I wore tight Italian ones. I once bent over in front of 750 people and got a seam to seam crack on my ass. Sorry, you, you had the bad seat, didn't you, on that one? Because the suit was so tight, it was like an Italian designer make. So, 
Yeah, that's a bit extreme. Thankfully, I had my stripy pants on just to show that I live and breathe the brand. <laughs> Should we edit this bit out of there? Yeah. Um, um, and so how we dressed was different. Our website was really personal. It was really clean. It wasn't corporate or stuffy. We put our mobile numbers on the website. We don't do that anymore. I'm not saying you should do that. But that's what we did when we started. Um, we'd go to a lot of networking events. We'd stay there till 11 or 12 at night. We'd be the last guys there, you know, doing business and exchanging business cards with everyone. So we were different. We were refreshing. We were vibrant. We were personal. Um, so your business card, your website, your colour scheme. I mean, blue and orange is quite a bright scheme compared to everything which is probably black, black and grey and corporate, etc. Um, so I was clear that we were not corporate. We were not stuffy. We were not hiding behind. We were pretending to be professional, but actually we were cold. That's, we were not any of that. We were almost anti-corporate. Now, that's almost become kind of fashionable and normal now. So Mark and I have to disrupt again because people copy us. They wear the stripy shirts. They do the things that, the way we do. So we'll probably have to evolve that. Um, so how can you put that kind of flavour? Now, it doesn't have to be like that. And you might not be disruptive. You, you might not be an extrovert. You might be an introvert. But you can still put your own flavour on this. So for a few years in Progressive, we'd want to get everyone wearing the stripy shirts. The, the lads didn't mind it. The women didn't really like it. They, they just weren't comfortable wearing them. Um, and in the end, the team just decided, well, um, we don't really want to wear this stuff in the office. We do wear it when we're um, at the events. So it's a fun. We have no dress code. So we have no dress code. Um, and they wear what they want. And they love it. Uh, we also have um, various different benefits that the staff can get. So in the early days when people worked for us, there were no benefits because we didn't think we could afford it. And then we might give them one or two benefits, like extra commissions or, you know, maybe you could take one Friday off a month. And then over time, when we used to do all of our start, stop, keep surveys, which we still do to this day, um, we got a lot of feedback from the team. And it, you, you tend to find that everyone wants something different. So gym membership is good for some and not for others. Dental is good for some and not for others. Some want to buy more holiday and some want to sell holiday because they never take all their holiday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what the culture we've created now is there's a choice of, I think, about seven benefits. Buying extra holiday, selling extra holiday, gym, dental. You can take a certain amount of Fridays off a month. You can come in a bit early if you've got children so you can take them to school, etc., etc. And then the, each individual picks, I don't know, three, four of them. And, and, and so people feel like they're getting what they want as opposed to being force fed what we want to give them. And, you know, some of those in the future will become a bit out of date where people aren't interested in them anymore. And then when staff regularly on our start, stop keep survey say, hey, look, we want this, we want this, we want this, we'll give it. We nearly had a private chef that comes in in the mornings to cook breakfast. Um, but in the end, it wasn't something that everyone to see. We wanted to do it, so we'd get him in earlier. <laughs> you know, but like, it was one of our ideas. Oh, they come in at 5am and cook breakfast. <laughs> um, but that, that, that one really didn't go down all that well, so we never did it. Um, like we, we will take um, probably once a month, we'll take a Friday, Friday afternoon and we'll just say, uh, go home. Or we'll, uh, we'll go down the pub. Um, it has to be a big pub now to fit us all in. Um, but, you know, the Friday afternoons where we all go down the pub, it's just a little thing, but it's really great. Now, we are, we, I must admit, 
I'm going to show my biases. What I want to do is I want to give all my staff everything that they want and it work for us too. That's the ideal. Because if you bend too much, you have a power struggle. So if I'll have Friday afternoons off, I'm okay with because the world doesn't do shit on a Friday afternoon. If they wanted Monday mornings or Monday afternoons to go to the pub, I'd probably resist that because that's a productive time. So there's ways that you can make these things happen and make it serve you. Um, because again, selfish, selfless, balanced. Use your staff and you want to balance that. Another thing we, we do is we celebrate birthdays and we celebrate anniversaries. Um, so I sometimes when it's someone's, like Damien, who's our head of marketing, he freaking hates it. And one year uh, he came in at like 9.30 and sat in his M3 the whole day. And everyone's like, where's Damien? It's his birthday. And he sat in his car and did his work in the car the whole day. It's just like, I will never forget that. But that blue M3 out there is, is Damien's. Um, but for every one or two that are embarrassed by it, I think if we took it away, people would miss it. So we celebrate birthdays, we have cake and, you know, we write a card and we sing a song. And um, I've not really sold it very well the way I've said it there. <laughs> Sounds pretty naff. But um, uh, also every anniversary we celebrate. One year, two years, three years, four years. And what we do is each year the team get a, a, a nicer gift. And when they get to two years, three years, five years, ten years, they actually get additional things on their benefit. So if our value is loyal team, which it is, we have to live it too. And we have to reward people who stay longer. So people who've been here a long time, they get like extra commissions or um, extra on their salary, or extra gifts. We spend a lot of money on gifts. Um, so it's just something we try and bring into the working environment. Now, when we started, Mark and I didn't think any of this stuff was relevant. Just get out there and do your job. And to be honest, if I was to start again, I'd bring a lot of this stuff in much earlier. A lot of people who've left maybe wouldn't have left or maybe would have stayed longer. Now, I just tend to nick these ideas from really good books or other staff members who worked for other companies or other companies or other entrepreneurs. OK, I've probably come up with a couple myself, but most of them I've just read in books and thought, oh, we'll give that a go. And then you constantly improve this. Now, when you constantly improve this culture and you add things in, you, if you're able to go to your staff every three months and say, oh, guess what? We're adding this in. What do you think about this? Here's an idea. Would you like this? They feel like the culture is progressing. Now, pause. Um, generally speaking, and there's been a lot of study and research into this, generally speaking, the three things that are the only three things that are more important for money in someone's role in an organisation are PRA, progression, recognition and autonomy. Progression, recognition, autonomy, and then money. So statistically, of course, it depends where you get your research. But statistically, according to my research of other people's research, money is not first. And it is said that a good working environment is worth 14% of a salary. I.e., You can pay 14% less if they like working there compared to other places. Of course, this is all just collated data that recruitment companies have done. But that tells me that, one, you don't have to pay as much salary if you've got all these other, like, basically, if you've got somewhere people like to work, they'll work for less money. And two, if you know that people value progression, recognition and autonomy generally above money, not everyone, some people it's money, 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 money. And by the way, sometimes those guys are easier to motivate because if it's recognition, 
That's like a void that needs filling. You're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing. And then you uh, look at their one-to-one notes and they said, oh, people don't value me, even though you tell them they're amazing because that constantly needs filling up sometimes. But somebody who just wants money, 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 it's really easy to motivate them. Um, so are you giving people progression? Are you recognising them? And are you giving them, you know, basically the resources to do the job and then letting them crack on with it? And I can tell you over the years, I've made all sorts of mistakes in those areas. That's why I went out to try and work out how to get it right. So even little things like when you've been in three years, you get X. When you've been in five years, you get Y. That is part of progression. If someone's on the fence about leaving, but they know their fifth year anniversary is coming up in six months. And that means X benefit. They may stay. Because sometimes people's decision to stay or go aren't as clear cut as you think. Sometimes they're just, you know, a lot of people are always sort of on the fence. So progression, like when you're a big corporate machine, the upside of progression is someone gets a job and they go, oh, that's my boss and that's my boss's boss and that's my boss's boss and my boss's boss's boss's. And then you can become partner and shareholder in 49 years. That's kind of easy to see. When you're a startup like you and there's you and then them, it's hard to see progression. So I, have, I, I had to, and I still see it as my job, I keep selling the vision, keep selling the vision. In two or three or five years, progress is going to be this. It's going to be this. It's going to be this. We're going here. We're going places. We're making a difference. And you have to keep fueling that narrative of where they could go because there's no proof when you're a startup business. There's a certain amount of selling the dream. Now, as long as I believe in it, I'm happy to sell it. Okay, so that's progression. Constantly coming up with, like, in, talk about innovation. You can put innovation into your HR department. You can put innovation into your employment contract, into your job description. You can put innovation into everything. Okay, recognition, the next one then. So um, here's the reality of being a leader and an entrepreneur. No matter how many times you tell someone they're amazing, you still probably didn't do it enough. No matter how much love you spray out in your office, though maybe the choose how you do it and maybe not like that. No matter how much good energy you put out into your um, cultural environment, there will always be someone that's not happy. All you can do is what you can do. So um, the, way, the way I try and view my role when I'm in the office, I'm not in the office a lot. So I've delegated responsibility of this to my MD. But when I'm in the office and I'm not there that much, I don't see my job to go around and bark orders. I just see my job is to go around and be a purveyor of good energy, i.e. talk to people, have a bit of banter, how you're getting on, try and make them feel good. If I have noticed things that are good, you did this well, well done with that, well done with that, and try and walk around and do all that. Not in the American whoop, whoop, rah, rah, high five, huddle, ruck, fuck yeah kind of way. Um, although maybe I should do that a bit more. I don't know. It might motivate them. Um, so... I think as a leader, that's part of your job to do that. Now, as you grow, it'll be harder to do that. So uh, I ask my staff members, if there's anything anyone's done that is good and they need recognition on, can you tip me off? Because we've got 80 staff and I don't know what a lot of them are doing. And it's often the extra extroverts that get the praise and attention because they go and seek it. But the introverts just do their job and they do it well and they often don't get seen. So I had to learn that and learn to pick out the introverts as well because they weren't, you know, like. Um, but then also know which ones like it publicly and which ones like it privately. So some people hate public praise and some people need public praise. 
So as you learn this over time, you're able to motivate, inspire. What this does is um, this transmutes into your customers. Now, now, some people say your customer is the most important person. Richard Branson says your staff members are most important because you treat your staff members well, they'll treat your customers well. Now, I would say probably both are equally important. But if you put this energy into your staff, the staff will put this energy into your customers. And then you don't have to put the energy into your customers and then you can scale. Um, on the maybe not so positive and fluffy and leadership side, sometimes you've got to do the opposite, opposite, which is just go and fix a load of problems. And you feel like, I sometimes feel like I go fixing everyone's problems, but no one wants to help me fix mine. I just sometimes feel as the leader of the organisation, who's helping me? Who's supporting me? Who's giving me the love? And my fucking wife. <laughs> Honey, she, she never listens. Love you. I'm only joking. But she's a practical person. Mark's a practical person. My MD's a practical person. They just tell me all the shit I get wrong. And even when I do it well, they have to wrap it in a criticism. <laughs> it's just their nature. Um, and like, you may feel differently to me or you may feel that, but as for the entrepreneur and the leader, sometimes you're putting all this out and then sometimes you're not getting it. So... You know, you've got to find a way of getting that need met yourself, maybe by getting a mentor or being in a mastermind, you know, having people that you can talk to, because what you don't want to do is get, get that neediness from your staff. Cool. OK, so we stand for um, being in control of your own life, financial freedom, choice, profit, autonomy, doing more of what you love, making money on your own terms. They're the kind of things we stand for. What we stand against is traditional education that funnels you down and gets you in debt for 15 years before you can get a 30 grand salary. We stand against some of our critics that, you, that think that, you know, well, you don't need to go on courses, you can just get everything on Google. Or oh, no money down can't be done, or, you know, it's impossible to do service accommodation in London because of the 90-day rule, or all these other objections and problems that our critics come up with. We stand against all that because we find solutions to that. So my question to you would be, what do you stand for and against? Because if you're clear about that, it will help you with your marketing, your positioning. It will help you with your messaging. Like, I'm a bit of a softie um, and I want everyone to like me. And business has kind of shaken that out of me, but still deep inside that's there, like a little pilot light on a boiler. It's definitely... I realise now um, that the more you grow, the more haters you have to take on and they don't go away. And I used to think the better I got, the less people would be critical of me. In reality, I learned the opposite. The better I got, more people would be critical of me. Uh, and, and I learned that that's a necessary function of life and evolution. And I can wish that I didn't have as many critics and trolls and haters and wankers. Um, but the reality is the more I grow, the more I get. So I probably used to try and avoid them when I was smaller by adapting my message based on feedback, i.e. dilute what I'm doing, by trying to be everything to everyone, i.e. nothing to no one or someone. And um, it's always a dance for me because I do need to be liked based on some baggage from when I was a kid and not having as much attention as I, I wanted. Um, some people don't have that need. They're the opposite. And that's they've got to learn something different. But you, you must get. Thank you, Joe. 
You must get out of your head that you can be liked by everyone. You must get out of your head that you can sell your service and product to anyone. And, you know, in business, they call it niching. You know, what's your customer? What's the avatar? What is, you know, the ideal client that you would have? Um, but in general business, it's I do this. I stand for this. I fight this corner. This is who I am. I'm fine. You can say what you want, but you're not going to change the mission that I drive. And um, so I've probably in the past listened too much to critics and diluted some of the stuff I've done. The other side of that is listening to critics where they've got valuable feedback improves your offering. So it's a bit of a balance. So it's, in a way, it's a paradox that you don't want a critic to take you off your mission, but you need to listen to a critic to improve your mission. So... When you stand for something, you, you by default stand against something. And when you stand against something, there's someone in the world that stands for that. And therefore, you're creating resistance. You know, persistence and progress always create resistance. So you should be who you are and do what you think is the right thing to do. And often the more controversial or polarizing or, you know, like... You know, like if, if you're extremely left, you will really wind up people who are extremely right and vice versa. So often the more volition you deliver what you stand for, the better your business grows. But obviously the more critics you will pick up along the way. Donald Trump, probably the, the greatest case in point. Love him or loathe him. He's probably one of the best marketers the world has ever seen. OK, you all good so far, by the way? Yes. Great. In the lunch break, if you want to extend this exercise, we're going to take lunch in a few minutes. As you can see, Jerry's just putting it out. Um, you did an exercise on what's unique about you. You might want to um, think about um, who you are and who you're not and what you stand for and what you stand against. You might want to write a few things down. It's up to you, of course. You've already paid. So I don't really care. It's up to you what you're doing. <laughs> All right, great. So I've talked a fair bit about environment. So I'll just summarise that. Um, could, um, could you make me up a plate? I'll have it later. High protein, low carbs. <coughs> yeah, really, you know what I like, don't you? Yeah. All right, great. So your office and your space we've talked about. Even just thing like in your little bedroom, put a vision board up. They do make, it, it makes a difference. Um, I used to have this thing. Um, they're not so popular anymore because the world has moved on. But do you remember when, when the digital photo frames came out? I put one by my desk and had scrolling images of all the things I wanted to achieve in my life. Um, and I, that was just there, flashing away. I'm, su I'm sure it helped. Um, cool, the working conditions that you create, the atmosphere, the feel, all part of your culture. Now, like, there's some binary things that can happen in a culture, i.e. you have an open communication, which means anyone can say anything, or you could have a directive culture where you're the boss and everyone tells you, does what you tell them. That's up to you. I like the open culture because I want to create entrepreneurs in my organisation that don't rely on me telling them what to do. But that means the downside is if they challenge me or give me feedback or resist something I want them to do, I have to take that that's the downside to the upside. Do you want to be approachable? Or do you want them to crack on and get their stuff done? Because you can't say, come and see me whenever you've got a problem. And they come to you with a problem and you say, piss off, I'm busy. 
which is what I used to do for years. You can't pick and choose that. Open plan or working in, you know, closed environments. All right, great. Does anyone have any questions? We're going to do a little quiz uh, and then we're going to be doing lunch. Anyone have any questions about anything we've covered so far? What you got for me? What's bothering you? What's your name? Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think about this a lot in my mind because I like to be disruptive, but I'm also, I've also got that little pilot like, that likes to be liked and wants everyone to like me and I want to help everyone and want everyone to do well and, you know, all sit around a tree and hug and sing, sing Kumbaya. I want that as well. Um, if you look at any of my marketing or any of my posts or podcasts or videos, the ones that have gone the wildest have been the most controversial, polarising, you know, like extreme ones. One of them was called All This 5am Club Bollocks. The title is obvious. And that was one of my most, they got hundreds of thousands of views. Um, I did a post when Jamie Carragher spat out of his Range Rover, got a million views in a day. Um, and I basically supported him when everyone else was on his back, saying that he should be fired and everything else. So I took quite an extreme stance. So here's the thing, and this is important. Um, I only take an extreme stance when I extremely believe in it. I have probably tried to be a bit marketing-y where I'll sort of take an extreme looking stance because I want to get a good marketing reaction. And then afterwards I've thought, you know what, that's attracted some shit that I've not really wanted. So I only do it now if I believe in it because, you know, then it's got authenticity and it's not a gimmick. Because I could make any of my posts way more racy. I know how to do it. It's also mood dependent. If it's a Sunday afternoon and a sunny day, I don't want to create a freaking shitstorm on social media because I just want to enjoy my weekend. So sometimes if I'm like in a courageous, brave, bullish, disruptive, argumentative, annoying mood, I'll do it. If I want a bit of peace and quiet for a few days, I won't do it. So it's sometimes mood based. Because, you know, you can hype up or tone down anything you put out there. Um, the next thing is, I won't intentionally name people, if at all possible. Or, so like all this 5am club bollocks, I'm not attacking an individual, I'm attacking a, a, attacking a group of people who bitch about everyone who's not up pumping iron at 5am in the morning, even though they're on Facebook and not pumping iron. And it'll piss off that kind of person, but it won't piss off an individual. So I wouldn't be like, why Donald Trump is evil? Or, you know, and a lot of people, they will attack individuals. I personally, for me, that, that grates my values. I'll do it, you know. So, like, um, I did one post called All This Hippie Minimalism. Um, and, you know, like, so the people who get really pissed off are hippies. Um, but, you know, it's not an individual. It's just people who are into minimalism. But, like, their resistance and their... It's funny, I'll tell you what, that, that post, I have to just talk about this post because like, there's all these people who are meditating, who are happy and love everyone and then you say, some, say the word all this hippie minimalism and they get really fucked off with you and troll you. And it's like, it's a little bit of a paradox there. You need to practice your meditation a bit more. Motherfucker! <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I'm prepared. I'm prepared to have a dig at the school system or the left or the right or if extreme hippies or all these hustlers and grinders getting up at 5am. But not an individual. So like I never, you know, there's loads of people who do all this awful anti-marketing against Gary Vaynerchuk. 
I've, you know, like, I've never said, yeah, okay, he's the one or one of the people to, talking about all this hustle, grind 10x stuff and Grant Cardone. But I'd never attack them. I, a lot of their stuff I really like. So that's my rule. And, 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 and if I'm going to go for something, I like it to be quite a big group rather than, because the more niche it is, the more you're getting it personal. And I try to not make it personal. And I try to make it fun and funny and also try and put a balanced view in. But that's my style. If you're too soft, because, you know, like, the media likes extreme views. Like, if I go, hey, everything has a balanced, paradoxical upside and downside, people say, oh, Rob, should you do your gold mine area locally or nationally? Well, the upside of locally is this, and the downside of locally is that, and the upside of national is this, and the downside of national. People don't want to hear that. It's too confusing. It's, it's not putting the flag in the ground. In reality, though, that's the truth. So what we do in our books is we say local only, local only, and here's why. And then as our training develops and more and more people go national, we say, well, if you want to do national, which we don't advise, at least do it like this and not this. Yeah, so I don't knock them. I just knock what I don't believe works. You have to, you know, like if you want to teach people, train people, lead people and get them to buy your stuff, you have to put your flag in the ground and say, this works. Do it like this, it works. Yeah, so you'll probably only see me every two or three months go really controversial and racy and out there and you'll know I'm feeling bullish and, and I'm ready for it. Bring it on. Um, but I do try and nine, 99 times out of 100 remain balanced and have a balanced debate. And I don't, I try not to attack people who are against my opinion. I try and debate them, try and look in the, up, at the upsides of what they're saying too. Try and have fun with my critics and trolls rather than get all, you know, <laughs> One of my most watched videos recently was a one minute video I did where I read out some of my love letters from my, did any of you see that? I don't know what it is now, but someone called me a bitch licker and like everyone's going around using it as like a term of endearment now. All right, bitch licker, how you doing? Yeah, we've turned it into a, like a positive phrase. I'm going to get a t-shirt, hashtag bitch licker. I really want to, but some people are going to misunderstand that. Sam, what's your name? Sam. Hi, Sam. Yeah, so no, I wasn't always like that because in my previous businesses before 2005, um, I didn't know how to sell or market. I was very introverted. I didn't have a lot of confidence. Um, a, because things were going bad and B, because financially in my part of that life, I was just struggling. I mean, I used to do kickboxing and I used to do art and I was confident at those, but I, was, I had no confidence in my ability to market, to sell, to put my work out there. So no, I did none of it. I learned it. I learned it by um, going on all the courses of all the American salespeople and public speakers who were like, and I, you know, I used to look at a lot of these big gregarious out there, not all American, but most American, because that's where a lot of this is driven from, all those speakers and sellers, and I just hate them. But I didn't hate them. I hated the fact that I needed to do more of that, but hadn't become that. So I hated what I hated things in them that I hadn't owned myself. And I just tried to get over that and learn from the most out there gregarious ones like Marshall Silver. And now, you know, I've learned a lot over the years from Grant Cardone and people like that who are out there and they will they will be controversial and they'll say this is the way it works. And they'll be very direct and blunt. Um, and I know, you know, like. I almost had to learn to go the other way and be really directly and blunt. So I've had the extreme of quiet and 
reserved and introverted. And then if you'd have seen me in the early days, if you watch some of the really old YouTube videos with me, you know, sort of 08, 09, 2010, I, I was definitely a bit more shouty and ranty and racy and controversial maybe. And I think I found my voice, which if you've got like introvert zero and you've got Marshall Silver, Donald Trump, Grant Cardone, 100, I feel like I might be at 75, 80. But sometimes it'll be dependent on mood. Like when you're in my position, and I say this with humility and gratitude, but also sometimes I get a lot of attention and sometimes I don't want it. Because sometimes you want to hang around with your kids for a few days or you just don't want to be seen because it, 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 it grates on you. So then I'll just go a bit quiet. And then sometimes I'm like, well, nobody loves me. I need, I need love from everyone. And I'll go and bark out to the world. Um, so you're also getting your own needs met sometimes. Um, so it's learned. The marketing, the sales, the speaking, the shouting, the ranting, the, the controversy, the whatever, it's all learned, not something I ever had. And, and it can be learned. If you learn sales and you learn marketing, you'll learn this. I have a course called Brand and Marketing Masterclass. Um, I only run one, I think, a year. Um, and, and that's focusing on that area. I mean, there's going to be a, a deep dive marketing section in this, but, you know, all the stuff about polarising and being controversial. I mean, these things launch products and brands and people and make them millionaires and make, you know, what makes a video go viral, what makes someone become an overnight success when, you know, yeah, they've been working hard for years, but bang, then they go massive. You know, if you look at Jordan Peterson and what happened with him and, his, um, his, uh, his stand against um, having to call people by what they deemed they wanted to be called in terms of their gender and not being able to say he or she. Um, and he just it was in that storm um, and he just got huge. Sold two million books in a year. He's the biggest selling author in the last, I believe, six or 12 months than anyone in the world, even like, you know, so name this huge author who does the fiction books, uh, the, the, the lady, the billionaire, J.K. Rowling, sold even more books than her. I mean, how do you do that? Because he took a stance and he, and he was strong and defended it. And now he may have done that on purpose for marketing or may have just done that because he really believed in that. But there's marketing and power in someone who believes in what they're talking about. Like, you know, you may be with us because you believe in what we believe in or you believe in my confidence in this program you might listen to my podcast if, if you don't believe that I have the conviction and the volition to stand behind what I say you're not going to follow it or listen to it or invest in it so someone with a powerful purpose and delivering something with volition that you can sense that they own that's very powerful that is and then if you had controversy and then you know polarization to that that just makes it double and triple powerful that's a little bit of that special uh, ingredient in the lasagna that makes it amazing. Which, if you're listening to this on audio, that analogy was in the last session and <laughs> it's probably really shit. Um, yeah, any other questions before we take luncheon? No? All right, well, I hope you've had a good morning. I've certainly enjoyed delivering it. I hope you've enjoyed um, being shouted at. Oh, remember, I've got to sign out with, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Thank you very much. 